would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Again, just one verse. <clears throat> I haven't heard too many complaints, but it seems like I preached longer on one verse than I do on a whole passage, so hopefully you'll be able to put up with that this morning. If not, I'll have no mercy upon you. Simple verse, very short, very sweet, full of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us this morning as we hold your word in our hands, as we hear your word proclaimed from the pulpit. We pray, Lord, that you continue to give us the mind of Christ, uh, that you would give us uh, the, the blessings of heaven, that we would not only taste them, but long for them as uh, we're called to. We pray, Father, that as we continue to have our eyes turned toward Christ in heaven, that uh, we would also enjoy much of the benefits of, of being in a right relationship with our Lord, uh, that you would give us these attributes that we are sorely lacking in and that you would continue to show us our need uh, for the Spirit to fill us in order that we might be fruitful. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. With the <clears throat> election on the horizon, there was an article I read in the paper this week. It has nothing to do with uh, what's going on now, but it was uh, a reflection upon what happened on the same day but many years ago, October of 1912, uh, two days ago. Teddy Roosevelt was running for a potential third term as president of the United States, and he had made a campaign stop in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And as he was emerging from his hotel room, he sat down in an open car, one of the first presidents that have the, his own presidential car, you know, with gas and everything. And uh, he sat down to, uh, to get ready to go downtown to make a speech, but then the crowds overwhelmed him with support that he stood up to wave his hat in thanks for their support. And as soon as he did that, a man standing about five feet away from him took out a, a pistol and shot him in point-blank range. And uh, immediately uh, he began to st stagger and totter, and then he fell back into the seat again. One of Roosevelt's men jumped out of the car and tackled the man to the ground. He was getting ready to shoot a second shot uh, at him. And uh, before he could do that, uh, the damage had already been done. Well, thankfully, that day, Roosevelt, as was his custom, was also carrying a steel uh, case for his glasses in his pocket, as well as a 50-page speech folded up twice. And so uh, even though the bullet still did some pretty good damage, it saved his life by what he had in his pocket. That's, that's what shot. Uh, that's where he got shot at. And uh, what's most amazing to the reporters at that time is that after he got shot, uh, he still went downtown to make his speech. Uh, and the speech was 90 minutes. And his shirt was seeping with blood the whole time he's talking. And, of course, he, he, you know, he's taking advantage of this, and, and he's telling everybody, well, you can't, you can't shoot me, you can't get me down. I'm, I'm strong as a bull moose, right? That was sort of his, uh, his moniker from, from that point on. But actually, what I found more astounding about the story is not what he said in the speech, you know, 90 minutes later, but rather what was said immediately after he was shot. As soon as he came to his senses, I mean, he's in shock, he actually disarms the crowd. The crowd was getting ready to lynch the man that had shot him immediately. They're going to take him and lynch him right then and there, uh, because how, how dare he try to shoot our 
presidential candidate. And it was his words that changed their mind. Uh, he actually assured the crowd that he was all right, that he was not going to die. And he ordered the police to make sure that there was no violence done to the man at all because he recognized the man was delusional. You could see it in his eyes. It was very plain. And Teddy actually shouted over the fear of the crowd saying this, he doesn't know what he's doing. Don't strike the poor creature. The juxtaposition of this bull moose character who's strong as an ox, who then gives mercy to his enemy, even one of the least of these, it's astounding. Sometimes mercy can be exhibited in the most unexpected places, in the most unexpected times. Uh, even Jesus used the surprising example of the Good Samaritan to help the Jews understand that it's not just about following the law, but having the, the greatest of the law, having compassion even upon your enemy. If you remember, as he was sharing the story, how it came up, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan came up because the lawyer was asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to win my spot in heaven? And, and Jesus immediately asked a question in response to his question, said, what, what, what does the law say? And, and the lawyer rightly said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus agreed with them. He says, now go and do likewise. And immediately the lawyer him and hauled and said, well, who, who, who is my neighbor, right? Wanting to get out of that uh, perfection of the law. And so that's when Jesus began to tell the story really of pure compassion expressed through deeds of mercy by this very unexpected Samaritan who was willing to help this poor Jew on the side of the road, even when his own fellow men were unwilling to do so. If you remember, the priest and the Levite saw him lying in his blood, more than likely, and did nothing to help him. They walked on the other side of the road, but not this Samaritan. He actually went out of his way, had compassion on him from afar, drew near to him, began to bind up his wounds, began to pour oil and wine upon those wounds, more likely from the resources he already had with him for his own journey. He then puts that man upon his own animal and walks on foot all the way down the mountain till he gets to the town. And then he actually pays for him for the lodging for the night, then takes up money again for him in the morning to pay for any expenses that he might have while the Samaritan has gone away, and then also promises that he will settle the account with the innkeeper for any extra expenses that might incur while he's away. In other words, he's giving him a blank check to say, whatever you want to charge me, I will, I will pay that for the sake of this neighbor. Now, telling the story, uh, Jesus asked the lawyer again, which of the three men walking on the road that day was the better neighbor? And again, the lawyer answered correctly. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him again, you go and do likewise. Now, if you, if you read this story and you think in any way that Jesus is saying, go do some random acts of mercy and that's how you earn your spot and have you misunderstood everything that he's just said. His whole point is to go beyond what the lawyer thinks that he can do to show that he's requiring a perfection of love a pure and holy love, one that goes well above and beyond what we could do in our sinful flesh because no one, honestly, no one in this room comes anywhere close to that type of mercy. And if that's the standard that God is requiring for someone to get in heaven, wow, none of us would ever make it. 
The same assumption that was made in our text this morning as well when he says be merciful as uh, to, to blessed are those who do uh, blessed are the merciful for they will be given mercy. He's, he's not focusing so much on doing but rather on being which is a lot harder. It's not that you just do some random acts of mercy but that your natural character is well known as a merciful person. You are merciful. Is that something that people know you by? You are a merciful man. You are a merciful woman in that sense. It's it's much harder to be than it is to do. To prove that we're not saved by our works, but by a changed heart. A, A new and powerful principle that now is dwelling within us that fills our hearts with compassion that that enables us to demonstrate some aspect of this mercy as we grow in our faith in the Lord Jesus. And again, like the other Beatitudes, mercy is not an outlook that is zealously embraced by this fallen world. I mean, we have to see that very, very, very realistically. Theater audiences might be moved to tears briefly over a partial display of mercy, but if you think about the majority of movies that are put out today, they're not about mercy. What are they about? Revenge. And we love it. And you can tell that we love it because that's what people pay for again and again. I mean, I can't tell you how many revenge movies are out this day or how many revenge television shows. It's all about hurting your enemy. I mean, and you know it's true. You've heard the expressions, don't get mad, get what? After all, they're only getting what they... You guys are quick at this. You made your bed, now what? These are all non-merciful expressions, are they not? But God's call to mercy is not just feeling pity for the person who's down on their luck at no fault of their own. The mercy goes well beyond that to feeling compassion for those who have ruined their lives, squandered every opportunity, and then have even sinned against you personally as you've sought to help them. He's saying have mercy upon that person. Not just the one that you you feel bad for. It's like, oh, it wasn't his fault. No, he's saying to have mercy upon the one who it is his fault. And he's ruined everything, and he's hurt everyone around him, including you. That's the real test. How do you really feel about the person who sinned against you, especially when you sought to go out of your way to help that person? And then they turn on you like an animal. Can you give mercy to that person? Because it seems that that's the standard that Christ is calling us to, even with this good Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And yet the Samaritan is going out of his way to give mercy to the one that has abused and used him again and again, despised him. If you remember when Moses asked God to show him his glory, and you remember God put Moses in the cleft of the rock and said, I'm going to let my goodness pass by you. And so he does. And then as as God is passing by Moses, he proclaims his own name. He says, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The first attribute he mentions when he's describing his glory is, I am a God of mercy. So Luke says in chapter 6, verse 36 of his gospel, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Why should we give mercy to others? Because God himself is merciful to us. And he's kind even unto the ungrateful and evil, Jesus says. 
Now, we may say that's a good thing. In fact, I think even the world would say that that's a good thing, to be merciful. But naturally, we're really more like Jonah, are we not, in the passage that we read earlier? Jonah, who was bitterly angry when the Lord gave mercy to the evil Ninevites because he didn't feel that they deserved mercy. They deserved judgment. But that's the whole point. Mercy is never deserved. It's always freely given out of compassion. If we had our way in the flesh, I think every single prayer that we ever had against someone who has sinned against us would be an imprecatory prayer. We're calling down curses upon them for even the slightest offense that's given unto us. If you think about Lamech in Cain's lineage, I'm going to kill him because he, he offended me. That's, that's our natural response to, to sin and those who sin against us. It's only the gospel that softens a Christian's heart toward fellow sinners to enable them to sympathize with those who are suffering and even motivates them to relieve their misery, especially the, the misery of the poor, as it says in Scripture. The, the, the Hebrew word for, for poor actually signifies one who's empty. They've, 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 they've drawn dry, you could say. And so it, this beatitude naturally follows in order from the previous ones that we've talked about because it's only the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness that is filled. And then the one who is filled can then help fill the empty. But you have to see that they're empty. You have to see that they're miserable. You have to see that they're in need and not just that they've hurt you. If you can see these needs and you've been filled with the riches of Christ, it's not hard then for you to give that help to the one who's in need, even the one who doesn't understand your love. So it's not just a change of heart, but it's a wealth of love residing in the believer that enables him or her to give mercy when it's the last thing they would want to do naturally in their flesh. And that's where the Pharisees fell short again and again. Even though they gave to the needy, uh, they didn't do it out of love or compassion. They did it in order to be praised by others. If you remember, Jesus says they're actually blowing the trumpets in the street. I gave. Look at me, how generous a person I am. But then the implication, of course, in the Good Samaritan is that when no one is looking, like the Levite or the priest in the story, he's walking on the other side of the road. He wants nothing to do with mercy because no one can see his acts of mercy. In fact, three times in Matthew's Gospel, he points out and rebukes the Pharisees for them being unmerciful. Uh, the first time, they were criticizing him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he gave this response to them, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call the sinner, not the righteous. Same response given the, the Pharisees the second time are critiquing him and his, his disciples for allowing his disciples to eat grain, pick grain on the Sabbath day. And again, he says to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Finally, he pronounces a woe directly upon the Pharisees because they're still congratulating themselves on their righteousness and their keeping of the law because they've been tithing their mint and their cumin and yet neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which he says, again, the very first one of the three that he mentions You've neglected mercy. You say you've done great things, but you don't love. There's no justice. There's no mercy. It's false. 
So the Pharisees practiced a, a legalistic approach to mercy. They would give you the law, but not give you love. I think many in our day can lean toward that direction. Many others lean toward what you might call an antinomian approach to mercy. Instead, what they do is they give you love, but they don't give you the law. Both approaches are dreadfully wrong and do not help the one who's actually struggling. Let me give you an example. Say you went to the doctor's office, and the doctor informs you that you have lung cancer and, and that it's, uh, it's terminal. He tells you this without sympathy whatsoever, that you're going to die within a month. And then he begins to berate you for your foolishness in smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. And after warning you of the danger again and again, you didn't listen, so he has no sympathy whatsoever for you. He shakes his head at you in disgust, and he walks out of the room. Would you like to have that doctor? Dr. Meany? Or would you rather have Dr. Nice? Same situation applies. You've been smoking cigarettes for years. Dr. Nice has also discovered that you have cancer, but he doesn't tell you because he doesn't want you to be afraid. He's seen the nicotine stains on your teeth for years, has never sought to correct your bad habits because he didn't want to offend you. Even when you came into his office the last few years with very discolored teeth and very nasty and persistent cough that you couldn't stop while you were in his office, he didn't rebuke you, but rather affirmed your choice to smoke, assuring you that the latest medical and psychological studies have approved of your lifestyle. Of course, he knows that those studies are skewed on purpose by lobbyists in Washington in order to make more money. And yet, he's afraid he might lose his job if he challenges your lifestyle in any particular way. So he puts on a smile and gives you a clean bill of health. Would you rather have Dr. Nice? Would you rather have Dr. Meany? They're both horrible doctors. One gives you the law and gives you no mercy. The other one gives you love, but gives you no truth. I know I have spoken about a couple things recently that have been hard for some people to hear, and, and I appreciate that. And I, I always, I'm always trying to do a better job of balancing how I give the law and how I give the gospel. But I, I want to say this. Um, to me, it's ironic in our society um, how a movement within our society continues to call Christians homophobic and transphobic. Uh, simply because they're speaking out against a particular sin, as they do with other sins, fornication, adultery. It's interesting. Every church I've ever been in, I have found particular sins in a particular culture that I've had to address. Uh, when I was in Pittsburgh, I had to preach against the Steelers because everyone was an idolatrous Steeler fan. They're waving their flags in the middle of the sanctuary. I was like, you've got to stop this. This is way, way out of hand, Right? You know, I've, I've been in other places where I've clearly had to confront, uh, I, one church I had to confront racism again and again. And that was the main thing I talked about. Now, in other cultures and other places I've been, it's been other things. And no matter where I go, there will always be something. But because our culture has, has changed drastically in the last few years, you, you, I, you probably you have noticed I have spoken about certain sins uh, more than on a, one or two occasions. And that, that has been on homosexuality. I, I want you to understand something about what I'm, what I'm saying here out of love. When I speak against homosexuality, I'm not seeking to inflict harm on any individual who struggles with homosexuality. Honestly, my heart goes out to them tremendously. 
Um, rather, what I'm doing is I'm confronting a worldly philosophy promoted by evil men that care nothing for homosexuals. They do not care for them. They do not tell them the truth. Christ said very plainly, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. But if you have a movement that's constantly telling people you're healthy when you're not, they will never hear the gospel. And so I constantly am, am pleading with my church, with the culture, listen to the truth. The truth will set you free. The lies will lead you to hell. The lies will lead you to darkness and much more sickness and ultimately death. There's no other way. Christ came to save the sick. You have to first admit you're sick. And when you do, He will give you mercy. He will. He doesn't withhold it. True love and mercy never ignores sin or say that it doesn't matter. It always matters. In fact, it's only mercy that causes us to warn people of the consequences that they face. It's mercy to warn people even of the judgment of hell because if I don't care for you, if I don't love you, I will never warn you of what you might face if you don't repent of your sin. That's hatred. Literally, Leviticus 19 says, I hate my brother if I'm not willing to confront him in his sin. It's not love. In fact, the love your neighbor as yourself, same passage, Leviticus 19. It's given in the context of rebuking your brother. He says you hate your brother if you're not willing to tell him the truth. And so there's a quote by Thomas Watson I've been meditating upon this week. Uh, it, it really is a fascinating quote. Uh, he says it so much better than I can ever say it. He's one of my favorite Puritan pastors. He said this, It's a cruel mercy when we see men wallow in their sin and say nothing. Yet a merciful cruelty when we are sharp against their sins and will not let them go to hell quietly. Let me say it again. I think it's worthy of repetition. It's a cruel mercy when we see men wallow in their sins and say nothing. Yet a merciful cruelty when we're sharp against their sins and will not let them go to hell quietly. Again, listen, listen to the word, word of God says. He's not making this up. Jude 23, we're, said, we're told to save others by snatching them out of the fire, to show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's not merciful to allow someone to be harmed and say nothing and do nothing to allow them to burn when they could be saved. It's, it's a unique combination of mercy and fear but it's not the fear of man. In, in, in fact, that's why I, I, I think it's kind of ridiculous and ironic that, that a Christian would be called homophobic or transphobic, or even a more broad term, anthropophobic, a fear of man. We're not fearers of men. We're theophobic. God fears, which is why we have to speak out against sin, which is why we have to point out the sickness so that the sick person can get I'm not trying to attack anyone. I promise you I'm not. I'm just trying to consistently say, if you don't repent of your fornication, you'll die. If you don't repent of your adultery, you'll die. If you don't repent of whatever other sins, thieving, stealing, lying, gossiping, you'll die. When the culture tells me this is not a sin, I have to say that's wrong. It's a lie and it's of the devil. You have to understand the truth because it's the truth that will set you free. Because God is always righteous, He's always holy, He's always just, any concept of divine mercy cannot contradict those things. God doesn't contradict Himself. If we say 
that God is just and holy and righteous and then say His mercy somehow diminishes that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Any view of mercy that negates God's law diminishes all the other attributes of God because it makes Him a liar. It can't be true. Whatever view of mercy that doesn't include God's righteousness and God's holiness is a counterfeit mercy. It's not true. It's not genuine. In fact, every time I even hear those words, that expression that you hear in our culture often today, now, love wins. I assure you without any uncertainty at all that that's not God's love that they're speaking about. It's it's a lie. Because love always deals with sin. Love always leads us to the death and resurrection of Christ that gives us hope. Any other view of the word love or any other concept of mercy in our culture only leads to death apart from Christ Jesus. You have to turn to Christ. The one who fears God does two things. He loves God and he loves his neighbor. It's both. You can't diminish God in order to love your neighbor. You've just broken the very first commandment saying, well, I'm going to disregard God's law because I want to love my neighbor. can't work that way. In order to love your neighbor, you have to love God first. You cannot diminish the truth in order to help your neighbor. The, the merciful Christian then is eager because he's been pursuing the paths of righteousness. He's eager that others might know the right way and yet also be merciful to them when they don't keep the right way. It's a both and. And why does he do that? Because he's a continual recipient of mercy himself. There's never a moment where any of us have to look at another person and say, oh, I feel so bad for you. I used to be that way. No. Every single day of my life, I need mercy. I need Christ's mercy. I I once had a man in a previous church admit to me that he had been struggling with homosexuality for years. And he was dreadfully afraid to tell me because he assumed I was going to condemn him because he knew my stance on righteousness. He knew my stance on discipline even within the church. And, and honestly, he was genuinely shocked that I didn't condemn him immediately. And the reason why I didn't was because he had already condemned himself. There was no need for me to condemn him. What would I possibly say to him? Yeah, you're right. You're horrible. No. He had already been convicted of his sin and was looking for relief. And I was so happy to say, here's the way. Here's the truth. Here's the life. Let me encourage you. You're on the right path. This is the way. Walk in it. Instead of rebuking him, I just encouraged him that God does indeed give forgiveness to anyone. It doesn't matter what their sin is. And I I reminded him, there was I think I may have shared it with you before, one of my favorite songs is It's a strange title, probably, for many of you, but it's literally called The Whore at Your Feet. And the point of the song is is that woman who is the prostitute who's weeping over Jesus' feet, and she's wiping his feet with her tears and with her hair. And the the point of the song is, if I could be anyone at all, let me be that whore at your feet. Why? Because it says, he who loves much is forgiven much. He who loves little is forgiven little. Why would I want to be like the Pharisee who immediately condemns everybody else in the room but doesn't see his own sin? Doesn't see his own need of mercy? In Tolkien's novel, The the Lord of the Rings, I've been reading it again recently, 
he, d- he describes a, a conversation between Gandalf the wizard and, and Frodo uh, the hobbit about a, a deformed and despicable creature named Gollum. If you're not familiar with the story at all, I'll try to fill you in later. But uh, basically, Gollum had murdered his best friend, had betrayed uh, one of the hobbits, Bilbo, which is a cousin of Frodo's, uh, by giving his location to the Dark Lord and puts him in danger. And then in addition, he's climbing through windows of houses to steal and then eat little children. So he's like a, he's like a monster, right? He, he, he was a hobbit at one time, but he was transformed because of the power of the ring and of his own sin into this horrible, hideous creature. When Frodo hears about all of Gollum's misdeeds, he says, it's a pity Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. And Gandalf replies, pity? It's a pity that stayed Bilbo's hand from killing him. He says, do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play in this, for good or for ill, before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. I love that statement. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Can you imagine what role your pity and your mercy can play in the future of other people? What's most surprising about Gollum is that, again, at one time he was a hobbit like Frodo. He was no different. And yet Frodo has no mercy upon him at all in the beginning because he sees him as a monster and Frodo is like this good hobbit, right? But the longer he wears the ring himself and bears the burden of that and senses his own sin and sees his nature changing darkly, he too begins to have mercy upon Gollum. And it's the same way for us. It's only as we sense and acknowledge our own sinful nature daily that we turn to God for mercy and that we're then enabled to give mercy to others. If we don't sense that, if we don't acknowledge that, and we try to hide that, we become legalistic or we become antinomian. In both ways, it's, it's, it's a false counterfeit mercy. One of the songs that we sang earlier uh, by Charles Wesley um, is called uh, Depths of Mercy. Depths of Mercy. Depth of mercy can there be still reserved for me? Can my God His wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners, spare? This is my only hope. That in heaven my Savior stands. He shows His wounds and again spreads His hands. It's this tender mercy that we sang about earlier in another hymn. Tender mercy. Do, do you feel like we sang it too much? Tender mercy, tender mercy, right? A little repetitive. I, I was thinking the first time it was, but then I was reading through Matthew's Gospel again this week and realized how many times it's repeated again and again and again in the Gospel. Every time we come across a blind man, a lame man, or a leper who's within earshot of Jesus, they're crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. Again and again. Why would they be so bold and so persistent in their cries? By faith, they knew that they were in the very presence of mercy Himself and that He delighted in giving mercy. That's the Gospel that we preach. A God who truly is merciful, slow to anger. He wants to give you that mercy. He's so generous in giving it out to us on a daily basis. And it should be the same for us. That's what He's teaching us. That if we're poor in spirit, we sense our own spiritual blindness and lameness repeatedly because of our sin, we too will cry out, 
Lord, have mercy upon me. After, after reading through that part of Matthew's gospel, it dawned upon me. I was like, how often do I cry out mercy? There's a good reason that we ought to. In fact, that's the point of Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant. Again, where the king decides to settle his accounts with his servants. He approaches this first servant who owes him 10,000 talents, which is just a, a, a huge sum. The man can't pay. The king's going to throw him in prison. But then the man gets down on his knees and pleads and says, just give me time. I'll pay you back every cent. Please forgive me. Have mercy. And the king immediately gives him mercy and wipes out all of his debt. Doesn't owe him a cent. But then strangely, that same servant, within the same day or the next day, goes to one of his lower servants and says, you owe me a hundred denarii. Pay me back every cent you owe or I throw you into prison. And again, that man got down on his knees and he pled and like, have mercy upon me. Give me time. I'll pay it back. But that first servant said, no, you don't deserve it. Threw him in jail immediately, along with his family, until he paid back every cent. Now, we don't have the exact equivalent in American dollars. I tried to give you some number last time. I can't remember what it was. But if we keep it in terms of... Uh, the Hebrew culture at least, a hundred denarii would be considered a hundred days of labor for an average worker. So uh, the second servant uh, owed basically a third of a year's labor. And so he could have paid it back if the servant would have given him time. But the, the second amount, 10,000 talents, uh, according to that same daily wage of laboring for a, a day laborer, is 160,000 years of labor. 106. There's no way he could ever pay that back. It's insurmountable. It's ridiculous. There's no way. And yet the king said, free and clear. No need to pay me back. You're forgiven. Mercy on display. It's only the person who sees themselves rightly in relationship to God that understands that the mercy that they have received from God is desperately needed because there's no way we could ever pay back what we owe. Our sins mount so high beyond the heavens, there's no way. Think of it on a daily basis. How many sins you've committed, how much you owe unto God in which you have not loved God with all your heart and you have hated your neighbor. The truth of the matter is that we all stand before God as our judge never demanding vindication for our righteousness, but pleading mercy. How then could we not give mercy to others who have offended us a lot less than we've offended God? It just doesn't make sense. We're not thinking rightly. If anyone is unable and unwilling to grant mercy to others, it's, it's due to the fact that they have either forgotten God's mercy or never experienced it in the first place. If you get God's mercy, You'll give mercy. Anyone who's tasted it, they, they want to share it with others. They, they want to extend that kindness to others, even forgiving others who have sinned against them personally, even again and again. Seventy times seven. That's the natural outcome for those who have received the blessing of mercy. We are blessed to become a blessing. We have received mercy wide that we might grant mercy to others, pointing them to the same Savior that we ourselves have found. But it's interesting, the way this 
beatitude reads, it's not just saying that God gives mercy uh, to those who have sensed their need of mercy, but now they will, themselves will receive mercy because they've been merciful. In other words, uh, mercy leads to mercy leads to mercy. You follow? Like a math equation? Jesus says in this beatitude, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Now, th- this can't mean what some people have tried to make it mean. That, In other words, uh, if you show mercy, then you sort of win your place in heaven. You work. It's become a, a work of of, uh, of of effort that you're trying to please God. It can't mean that simply because none of us would ever be able to reach that standard. It's a standard of perfection. If you want to try to get to heaven by how much mercy you've exhibited, it has to be perfect. It has to be all the time, consistently, even to the, the person that you hate the most. You would have to treat the person that you hate as if you love them more than you love yourself. If we hold to this standard, which is not what Jesus is actually teaching here, none of us would get into heaven. That's not what he's talking about. But rather what he's talking about is that when we demonstrate this mercy as God's mercy is flowing through us to others, we then enjoy more of God's mercy and even more of the mercy from our fellow brothers and and sisters, even from neighbors. They have a different view of us when they sense that mercy uh, demonstrated in our lives. The reward of mercy simply means that God gives us even more mercy, makes it more available to us so that it makes us even more bold in our approach to God when we need mercy because we know we have it. God's power is at work within us. We know that we can receive it because we've seen others receive it even through our words of forgiveness. But we also receive mercy from others. If you think about it, the, the Shunammite woman, uh, remember who helped Elisha and, and built a house for him to stay in and, and uh, ministered to his needs, gave him food, gave him a place to stay. Later on, we find that the prophet purposely goes to her and says, I want to show you mercy because you've shown me mercy. And prays for her. She has a son. And, and so many blessings come about because she was merciful. God loves to reward mercy with more mercy. On the other hand, you can think of Nabal, if you remember, who refused to show mercy to David and his men who were hungry, even though David and his men had helped protect him and provided for him, and he had no desire to return that with any mercy whatsoever. And so David is growing in wrath, ready to kill him if it's not for his wife who saves the fool that he is. In fact, uh, if you think about some of those imprecatory psalms, it makes sense in light of what we're saying here in the Beatitude. Psalm 109 David prays just a, a very tough prayer, uh, an imprecatory prayer against a man who had been very unmerciful to him. Here's what, he, here's what he asked God for. He said, Lord, do not answer his prayers. Lord, cut his days short. Make his wife a widow and his children beggars. Close the heart of all of his neighbors toward him and to his family entirely. Blot out his name from under heaven and cut off his memory from earth. Why would he pray that? Because the man had been so unmerciful, so unjust. He's having to leave it to God's hands because like, I would kill this guy right now, Lord, but I'm going to leave it in your hands, but you take him. <laughs> he doesn't know what to do with it. To, to, to run across a man who had been that unmerciful, he's not worthy of reward, of mercy. He's worthy of a lot other, more other things. On the other hand, there's an example in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, where the Apostle Paul gives thanks to the Lord on behalf of of a man named Onesiphorus who 
who had shown him mercy while he was in prison, refreshing him and tending to his needs repeatedly when everyone else had abandoned him. This guy's continuing. How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I show compassion toward you? And as a result, the Apostle Paul prays this. He prays that Onesiphorus would find mercy on the day of the Lord as a result of the mercy that was shown to him through this man. So just as there is grace upon grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's also mercy upon mercy upon mercy. So the question I have for you this morning is this. Do you know the mercy of God that can be found in Christ Jesus? doesn't matter what sins you've committed. doesn't matter how often you've committed them or how many people you've hurt. It doesn't matter if you've entirely ruined your life and have been the greatest ogre that life has ever seen. God's grace is what? Greater than our sin. His mercy is greater than our failures. Our God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet, he says, he will by no means clear the guilty. God will never overlook your sin, ever. He will never say, oh, it's okay but he will deal with it. He sent his son, Jesus, to the cross to deal with your sin so that he does not have to diminish his justice, his holiness, his righteousness. There is one way for him to give you mercy, and it's through the cross of Christ, and only through the cross of Christ. There is no other way. And so when someone in their sin wants to be relieved of their sin, the only relief is going to be found in the cross of Christ. Do you know Christ in that way? Have you gone to Jesus? Lord, have mercy upon me. He's so quick to give it. Plead it. Seek to repent of your sins and He will help you. Once you've found that mercy, then you ought to begin to extend that mercy to others as well because now you're just living in mercy. Oh, you're just swimming in it. This is good stuff. I love mercy. Let me grant mercy to others as well. It makes you much more quick to forgive them of their sins, much more willing to help them when they don't know how to be helped. Jesus says, this is what makes a man truly happy, to live in mercy. This is what makes a man truly blessed, to know mercy. Now, there's nothing new that Jesus is saying here at all. In fact, he's just repeating Old Testament law again and again. And even Micah, in his prophecy, Micah 6.8, most of you know this passage, he's told you, O man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to what? Do justice, depending upon your translation, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's the requirement of the law. Do justly. Don't give it up for the sake of mercy. But also don't just do justice. Also love mercy. And how do you do that? Walking humbly with your God. By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I commend God's mercy to you. Do not, do not lose your opportunities in enjoying the mercy of God because you refuse to extend it to others. Mercy is given to mercy is given to mercy. Praise God that mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would help us
with our tendency toward judgment apart from mercy. Help us to stop making excuses for ourselves and in our lack of desire to come to you for mercy. We think we don't really need it. We don't, we don't think we're all that bad. We know someone else is worse than us. Lord, we pray that you would make us sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You would help us even now as you have convicted us of some of the truths of your word. Lord, let us not walk away from here being hard-hearted and, and closed ear to what you would have to say to us. Lord, give us a heart of mercy. Help us to know that the mercy of God is infinite and gracious and so sweet. Let us love the Christ who has saved us. Let us love our fellow man who is in need of that same salvation as we are. Lord, let us give mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name.